you can have access to a market without physically having to be there or be a resident of said country. Yeah, I think we're seeing probably a really interesting competitive dynamic that will play out in the global marketplace. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You're listening to sounds from Estonia's Restoration of Independence Day. The former Soviet territory is celebrating 30 years since it emerged from the Iron Curtain. Estonia is a country of 1.3 million, making it about the size of San Jose, Silicon Valley's largest city. Do you work for the government? Yes, I work for Estonian government because... That's Estonian government official Katrin Vaga speaking to me from the capital, Tallinn, about a three-hour ferry ride south of Helsinki, Finland. Now, that's if you want to live in Estonia. If you want to base your company in Estonia, you can work there virtually through something called an e-residency. Because we have almost completely digital society, uh, you can establish a company in Estonia. It gives you access to a European economic area, basically European Union countries, to do business, to have partnerships, uh, to, to work as a freelancer. And uh, it's very easy to administrate your company because it's all online. We really uh, started from the blank page and uh, uh, established it was a political decision and they worked together with the private sector. So we established the practices that were, uh, you know, step ahead already. Tallinn is a good example of what sociologists and futurists call a smart city. More than just coordinated traffic lights or echo green street lamps, smart cities have forward thinking, modern policies and progressive rules. You know, I think what we're seeing is tech speeding up changes that were already underway before the pandemic. I'm Jess Northend. I'm policy lead at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. I spoke with Jess and her colleague Benedict about the future of cities. I'm Benedict Macon-Cooney. I'm the Deputy Executive Director of Technology and Public Policy at the Tony Blair Institute. Together, they're pushing for cities and governments to develop policies that will allow the world and business to come together. More work, more globalization. So we talk about jobs moving away from places like London and uh, Silicon Valley 
uh, with all the technology. But really, the job, in a sense, stays in that city. It's the person that moves away. And that really occurred to me when I read an article in the Wall Street Journal by Catherine Bindley. She writes, in the short term, the democratization of tech jobs is broadening Silicon Valley's reach and influence rather than diminishing it. Longer term, companies in smaller hubs are hoping the current pinch is temporary and that eventually they'll have access to the new tech migrants, especially if larger tech companies start reversing work-from-home policies, easing their labor shortage and enjoying a livelier tech scene and the venture capital that comes with it. That's an interesting way of looking at it, that the talent still fundamentally works in these large hubs. Yes, I think that's right. Um, and actually, you know, colleagues in the US may have seen this um, happen a little bit over the past year, but the complexity of um, what happens when the place that you work is different to the place where you're physically located, uh, you know, in terms of filing taxes and all of those other things that we we all have to do. Um, and actually, you know, we have a state that isn't um, often hugely well equipped for this kind of this kind of mobility that we're we're now seeing. But I think there's also a couple of really interesting things that uh, jurisdictions and cities and states can do to strengthen um, the kind of support infrastructure that they put in place to attract those anywhere jobs. I mean, one is childcare and President Biden is at the federal level doing, um, you know, trying to make headway on this in terms of the American Families Plan. But other things that are incredibly important, like broadband speeds, solid housing stock, all of the kind of nuts and bolts that you would expect to give people a, a high quality of living are really, um, really incredibly important still and give those kind of smaller cities um, an opportunity to to attract tech migrants if, if that's what they're trying to do. And Benedict, it's my understanding that the state of Vermont is doing some of that. They are encouraging people, you know, work for whatever company you want to. It doesn't have to be in Vermont, but come live in Vermont. Yeah, I think we're seeing probably a really interesting competitive dynamic that will play out in the global marketplace, um, and, you know, in competing for labour in very different ways today. And I think, you know, that sort of remote first point, which, you know, I think companies like Coinbase and some others in Silicon Valley have gone to, you know, are really sort of pushing on the frontiers of how this can work, that sort of decentralised, distributed workforce. Uh, I think the question on a lot of this stuff, I mean, you've seen them the sort of potentially the old legacy firms to some degree of, uh, of of high income talent of sort of, you know, the investment banks, which is JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs saying, you know, it's all office. You're probably seeing a bit of a natural experiment play out on what this actually means as well. And I think one of the questions that we've, you know, just from a sort of, you know, even from as a business perspective that you might even have is like, does it, can innovation in and of itself and creativity maintain in a sort of distributed workplace. I mean, I think I always think back to that sort of Hamming, Richard Hamming essay on the open door and how it's actually a state of mind. And actually, do you begin to lose touch with um, those sort of creative points of friction if you don't have those kind of agglomeration effects which you'd get through proximity? Um, but, you know, I think Jess really sort of plays this out and you know, really importantly and what the policy questions might be around this, because if anybody's also set up a, you know, a, a, you know, if you're domiciled in one place and you've got a headquarters in another, plus you might want to be then taking on a worker in another place, there come a lot of legal and tax implications around this. And I think the complexity of business in a distributed way and the decentralized element of it are a lot more profound than we sort of originally kind of think in these early days of this grand natural experiment of remote working. 
And Jess, I think that, you know, workers, when we were faced with this idea, you're going to go home, you're going to connect to the office uh, virtually. Workers figured it out fairly quickly. I think companies figured it out fairly quickly. But I, I, maybe municipalities and governments are, are a little bit behind the curve on this. I don't mean with government workers. I mean with the infrastructure of, of doing this. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, in some respects, this is all an incredibly new trend um, that we're really starting to work through. And so I think we will start to see some uh, jurisdictions, some governments starting to um, do some really interesting experimentation around all of this. And we're seeing that in a couple of uh, countries, uh, particularly in in parts of Europe, that are now experimenting with e-residency, where you can um, have access to a market without physically having to be there or be a resident of, of said country. And I think we're going to see more and more of that over the next couple of years as, you know, more of these anywhere jobs um, are created and, and as people really start to, you know, experiment with their own futures in terms of where they want to be based and, and the companies that they want to work for. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Estonia did that. It has an e-residency, which is hard for me to get my my head around. But And it made me think of Brexit, uh, because if someone thought you could protect UK jobs by leaving the European Union and stop, say, an, an Estonian from, you know, uh, uh, putting an English plumber out of work in England, anywhere jobs might mean an Estonian will take somebody's accounting job in Britain. I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think, obviously, some of these Jobs are kind of, you know, they're sticky, right? You know, as you say, like, you know, a plumber's not going to be replaced um, by someone with an e-residency uh, anytime soon. But, um, you know, I do think at that sort of top end of the knowledge economy, I do think we will begin to see that kind of competition. I know that the UK has recently, you know, made some adjustments around, uh, you know, going very much to the high, um, you know, the high end of the market with people that have studied at what they would define as sort of world-leading universities, but I think, you know, part of the sort of e-residency and sort of kind of more, um, I guess, again, sort of distributed and sort of uh, networked uh, ability that the internet gives you um, means that more nations will, I think, begin to deploy that. That said, I do think that sometimes, you know, you can go for those slightly utopian ends of where technology can get you. And I think it could, you know, could be fast, fantastic if you could do your job on a beach in, um, you know, the Seychelles while you might be, you know, you know, working for a British company. But I do think that, you know, the other elements that actually make, you know, labour markets less flexible to some degree still remain, you know, people like to be near their family, people like to, um, you know, 
be near you know their sort of you know activities whether that's sort of playing football or you know the community-based aspect of this is also quite a very strong pull and means that you know as much as sometimes you can have very large degrees of labor market flexibility um actually often the sort of the very human components can you know mean that they um you know end up sort of juris you know, being you know very sort of uh, settled in where they might begin to work from. Needless to say, if sort of high value paying jobs as well do crop up from around that world, they're entirely remote, uh, you know, you might be able to then have the benefits of your sort of local community whilst also earning a sort of a, a global living. We think about all of this as as a, a win-win. Uh, let's use a random example of a, a Facebook worker who moves and takes that grant to work in Vermont uh, everyone wins. Uh, Facebook keeps its talent. Uh, the worker enjoys living in Vermont at a lower, uh, you know, cost of living. Vermont wins because it has a, a tax-paying citizen. Who loses w- when we have these anywhere jobs and this globalization of jobs? I think still the probably the biggest element, and I agree, there's a lot of benefits that come out of uh, of this. I think where you will begin to see. Uh, you know, some of the, the losers is depending on, it's, it's all about the shape of the of jobs as well in the sort of the broader sense, right? And this is always the sort of the key question I think we get through with the, you know, technology, which is, you know, the more that sort of jobs and value are created at that high end of the market, you need to see, you know, more and more sort of be created down the chain. And in that Vermont situation, I think you will see strong multiplier effects, which mean, you know, that, you know, the person that has a high salary might be able to, you know, stimulate local businesses as long as you have enough of them. Um, but you obviously need that sort of demand side. I think, you know, in the broader sense, the the bits that are still the worry from policymakers' perspective are, you know, the displacement at the lower end of the market, whether that is also then compounded on a sort of a more global scale, you know, particularly um, uh, in countries which are, you know, down the you know, lower middle income countries. But I think in this situation, you could, you know, it could see strong multiplier effects that that, that ripple through. But you know, again, it will need enlightened policymakers to be able to be able to um, uh, to make that sell and to make that pitch. And and again, so going back to what Jess said, I think on this, the other point is that you need that infrastructure to be able to do that. Um, and if you don't have that infrastructure, you're very unlikely to be able to attract those kind of workers um, to do it on a sort of fully remote scale. So I guess the, you know, in some ways the losers are the people that don't have the infrastructure yet. And that's why we need to really work hard on ensuring that you know, all countries have the infrastructure that enables them to be able to compete at that kind of level in the global market. And Jess, are there actionable things that cities and states can be doing beyond infrastructure? I mean, you know, the need for broadband, if you're going to have, you know, internet virtual workers, that's that's baked into that. Uh, but are there other things that cities can be doing? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are some really interesting um, needs around um, childcare, which we've talked about a little bit and some of these uh, things that are being increasingly um, recognised by uh, policymakers at the federal level you know, the, the institutions of the state that mean that people can work full time, return to work, wherever that might be. Um, I think there's also a lot as well around, um, you know, the kind of quality of life indicators. I mean, one of the things that we're observing is that, as we've talked about, not all jobs will be anywhere jobs. Um, you know, there are some where, for example, in the care economy, um, where obviously that physical proximity is, is, is an essential part of the job. But also in quite a lot of leadership roles where you have that mix of, you know, cognitive skills, cognitive expertise um, and the EQ that you need to to run teams as well. 
And actually, those jobs are most likely to end up with people being in an office two, three days a week and then having a remote mix as well. Um, So actually thinking really smartly about uh, regional transport networks, I think is incredibly important as people move from perhaps being in a city to being in the suburbs. And as Ben said, just that mix of, um, you know, the urban mix really starting to change. And Ben, the uh, the Tony Blair Institute is going to expand into San Francisco uh, with a with a physical location, right? Which kind of, in some ways, counters our our discussion. But why why come into San Francisco? We have offices in London, Singapore, Accra, and Ghana, and San Francisco. And I mean, the fundamental view of this is that the technological revolution um, is a global revolution, not just you know confined to one geography or jurisdiction. And so to actually begin to tackle these questions, you need to have a quite global purview about how this is all unfolding. Um, The reason for San Francisco, I think, is um, obviously is one of the centres of the technological revolution. Um, And, you know, still, despite some of this, um, I think, movement away from the city, you still have, you know, very, very strong uh, tech sector. And, you know, one of the key sort of, tenets of our work is that you need to bring together the policymakers and the change makers and those developing the technology to begin to actually deploy these technologies. And so, you know, part of that is actually having some degree of proximity to those uh, building the technologies that we think are changing the world and being able to engage in a sort of productive conversation about how we deploy them so that they can, you know, be as broad based and equitable as, um, as possible. We need to get together to talk about how to work apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, as I say, I think, you know, to some, you will probably see a stratification of the labor market. And I, I, I think, you know, you will see some that can play into this remote first, some that, you know, can't and that will do a hybrid and, you know, others will, in some degrees, this will be, you know, a degree of choice. Some of it will be a degree of, um, of necessity. And I think, um, you know, the more flexible that you make your labor market in a globalized world, uh, you know, the better the outcomes are, the more that you adapt to the sort of the digital revolution again, so the better your country is going to thrive. Benedict McCann Kumi and Jess Northend of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change talking about smart cities. As we leave you this week, let's end where we began in Estonia and the Independence Day Party. Sandhill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.